0: Welcome. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We are in the middle of, even though we're in a new year, we're in the middle of a series that we've been working through, Acts 15. So let's see what God's Word has for us today. And as is our custom, once you find Acts 15 verse 1, whatever you're looking at God's Word in, whether it's a paper Bible or on your app, if you would, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand together as I read this passage. Acts 15, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read to verse 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and all the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. So as we have been coming through the book of Acts, we have been noting that God began this work, Acts 1a, you will be my witnesses to the work of Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, that God began this work through the life of Jesus, who was Jewish, who was a practicing Jew, someone who had been circumcised on the eighth day and kept food laws and food customs, and began that work and began His death and burial and resurrection in Jerusalem, But in the book of Acts, you see that God intends to expand that reach, that the bearing of witness, the testifying about Jesus should not simply remain in Jerusalem, but it should go beyond those borders. And it should go to Judea and Samaria, and even beyond the nation of Israel, to the uttermost parts of the earth, to Gentile lands, to what's known as the dispersion of the Jewish people and the lands of the dispersion. And as that happens there are certain tensions that the early church deals with, and we looked at a number of those tensions as we looked last week at what is known as the first missionary journey, but today some of those tensions come to bear on Paul and Barnabas and the church up in Antioch, and the church in Jerusalem has to embrace some of this tension and talk about some of this tension. I think... It is interesting that we are in a season of significant tension in our own lives, in our own communities, not only politically, but with the pandemic, that we are completely in a season of tension. You cannot turn on the news without feeling a sense of tension. You might not even be able to talk to your neighbors. You might not be able to go on social media without feeling the tension that is going on. And it is interesting that we find ourselves in a passage where that sort of tension is felt significantly by the church. It's a different sort of tension. They're they're dealing with a different issue, but it gives us some kind of a sense that as the gospel goes out, that there is tension in our world and that there's tension that God intends to enter into with his people. And that God is not absent from the tension that oftentimes God will bring tension into our lives, will bring tension into our churches to help us deal with things and set our priorities about what is of first importance. And in this passage, and as we read in our New Testaments, that there are things that are of first importance, second importance, third importance, but to refocus ourselves on what is necessary and what is important, what's of first importance. So let's look at this passage. Let's look at the problem. Let's look at where this tension is coming from and how it arises. Look at verse 15, verse 1. You guys ready? I mean, I know that, you know, I hope you're, by the way, I just, I want to say this, I hope whatever New Year's resolutions you've said, you've set up, whatever changes in your life or patterns that, um, that they're bearing fruit, I, I certainly hope that that's the case, and I hope um, in our path, we have, the, we have the phrase, get on the path, stay on the path, and I hope you're on the path, and if you're on the path, I hope you're staying on the path, all right? So get on the path, stay on the path, we're rooting for you here, and I also have these things in my own life, but anyway, are we, are we all good this morning? wherever we are, I hope you're doing well. Let's look at our passage, 15.1. In 15.1, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You know, to put it another way, you look down in verse 5, it's stated in a very similar manner. In verse five, it says, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, and order them to keep the law of Moses. And it is, I think there's a number of things that are interesting here. For one, that sometimes we forget that the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jewish. All the followers of Jesus, Jesus himself was Jewish, all the people who followed him were Jewish, it's only after, even on the day of Pentecost, the gospel is preached to Jews, to to diaspora Jews who are in the city of Jerusalem, and it's only after really Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and then the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13 and 14, that we see the gospel going out to Gentiles, and I think, for, for me, like, I'm a Gentile. And I think, well, it's always been like it's been for me. It's all The way we have it here as a church is always the way it's been. And we forget this passage kind of wakes us up to the idea, especially when it says that there are certain people that are from the Pharisees that have believed in Jesus. And the earliest followers of Jesus, they were, they were kosher eating. They were circumcised on the eighth day. They were Torah observant. They were people who practiced Sabbath and food regulations. And so this is the environment in which this good news is going out. And there are now some tensions now that Paul and Barnabas have preached the gospel in foreign lands to foreign people who speak foreign languages and previously had worshipped foreign gods. What do we now do with them? And the debate is essentially around this question. Now that the Gentiles, non-Jews, non-Hebrew speakers, non-Jewish, now that the Gentiles have believed God's message, that Jesus is God's Messiah, King, like we have, we have believed that, and they've trusted Him for their forgiveness of their sins, like we have, Should they not live their lives according to Torah like we do? It it seems to be a fair question. We've gotten to where we are doing these things. God has revealed this to us while we've been doing these things. these, These identity markers, circumcision, kosher eating, Sabbath keeping, and all the regulations that surround that should they not live their lives according to Torah? Circumcision is part of the Abrahamic covenant in Acts chapter 17. Moses talks about it in Leviticus chapter 12. This is It's not like this is outside of God's word, the scripture. As a matter of fact, it talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that Moses is saying, do these things that are in Torah so it might go well with you and have peace in the land. So the question... And all of these things are established by God's revelation, circumcision, and Torah observance. They're considered signs of the covenant. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, okay, here's going to be a sign that I am your God and you are my people. You're going to circumcise all your males. To Moses, he says, this is going to be a sign that I am your God and you are my people. You're going to keep the law, the Torah. So I, I don't want, like... I think easily we can read over this and we can be like, oh, there's bad guys. There's good guys and bad guys in this passage. And in a lot of ways, I mean, we want to understand the way they're, they're approaching this, but these are, these are people who believe in Jesus and believe that circumcision and Torah observance are the path forward. And they say these things and keeping these things as sign that are signs of the covenant that it's intact. And now the question is now this. Now that Jesus has come to do His work, what are we going to do with these signs? Not just in our own lives, the sign of circumcision, food laws, kosher eating, and Sabbath keeping, okay, just the, kind of the three biggies here. What are we going to do with these things? And not just what are we going to do as a people, but now that the gospel is being preached to people who really don't know these things, what should we What should we ask of them in regards to these very peculiar things about us as a people? What are we going to do about this? What do we do for ourselves and what do we do with them in regard to outsiders, these outsiders who are embracing Jesus as their king, as their Messiah? I mean, it's a good question. How can you have the God of Abraham and the God of Moses... Or how can you be part of the covenant that God makes with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Moses and not do the things that Abraham and Moses do? It is a fair question, okay? Now, I don't wanna give too much time to this because there are some clear answers also that we come to in this passage and in the rest of the New Testament. Um, One thing to note here, and this is something, in, in chapter 15, particularly um, in, a, in a number of places. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is it, in Peter's speech, and we're going to look at this his speech in a second. It says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, this idea of circumcision, food laws, Sabbath regulations, okay, this idea of keeping Torah, according to the rabbis, was oftentimes considered a yoke, but it's important to note that many Jews of the first century looked at God placing that yoke on them, was a yoke of partnership with them, that you would yoke two oxen together, and that this yoke, that many Jews looked at this as, I'm being yoked, I'm having this yoke put on me, and God is the other oxen in this, like, can I say that God is an oxen? Like, in the, in, in the analogy that I'm being yoked with God and carrying the yoke. And this, this yoke is Torah, okay? But it's also clear, if you read first century Jewish literature, that there are many Jews who take that idea of the yoke, which, which, also, which has a sense of partnership with God, but it also has this, this image of burden to it. And that what we find in the first century is that there are many Jews who look at the sort of regulations that the Pharisees have put on, that have added onto this yoke as too heavy of a burden, that it's, it's become too much. And even Jesus himself, do you remember Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 10, where he says, um, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. For what? My yoke is easy my burden is light and what he's implying there and what we see in Jesus's ministry is that there had been a tendency to take other external regulations and put them on as part of that yoke and that yoke had not had moved from this yoke of partnership it seems to being understood as a yoke of burden and you in this passage i think we see it in 5 uh, 15.10, that it's a yoke to bear, that in two places it's called a trouble to the Gentiles, that it's called a burden to the Gentiles, and that by putting this on the Gentiles, that essentially taking the yoke as it existed in the time of Jesus and putting that yoke on the Gentiles would be what Peter says is putting God to the test. So, all that to say that we have this this issue of, what do we do? Now that Gentiles have heard the gospel, what do we do with our way of life and their way of life? How do we, is there any fruit we should look at? And what kind of fruit should we be looking for? And it raises a theological question. And you might have asked this question as well as I do. At At any point in time in our Christian lives, we ask this question, and that is, what does it take for someone to be saved. What does it take for someone to be saved? We had these people showing up and they're saying, unless you circumcise according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What does it take for someone to be saved? How How is anyone saved? How are Gentiles saved? saved? Are Gentiles going to be saved in a different way than Jews are going to be saved? Is it the same salvation? What sort of salvation are we looking at here that the Gentiles get to participate in? All right, that's the problem. That's the tension, okay? Do you feel the tension? I don't know if you do. You might, Uh, but this is a real tension that is experienced in this passage. Now, probably the best way for us to attack what is going on with this and what the solution is is just to look at Peter's speech here. Look at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Acts chapter 10. That God gives Peter a vision. He has this vision. He, does, he says, don't call anything impure or unclean that I have made clean. And at the same time, you get a knock at the door, three Gentiles are there saying, come with us, and he says, okay, I'm going to go with you. He ends up in the home of a Roman centurion, like in in the invasion, in the oppression point of the nation of Israel in Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea, and God says, hey, and Cornelius has gathered his whole family saying, we need to hear what you have to say, Peter. So, God had created the situation for Peter to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And that's what he says in verse 7. And then verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And he alludes to the idea that when these believers, when these Gentiles heard the gospel and believed that they were filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way that those were filled with the Holy Spirit in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. So he makes no distinction. Now verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? If God has already borne witness that this is what he wants to do, why are you now putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. All right, to this question, how is anyone saved? How are Gentiles saved? How are Jews saved? The first answer to that question is both are saved in the same way. And I want to talk a little bit about doctrine, a little bit about theology, a little bit about what in theological circles is called soteriology, and some key terms that show up in this speech that I think we need to embrace, and that probably if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you have engaged with terms like this, you've heard these terms, okay? And here's what they are. The first is the word gospel. You see in, in 15.7, it said, God made it clear Made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and we've talked about this from this very stage in this pulpit. The word gospel means good news, a good message, and that good news, if we were going to boil it down, is that God's saving power is available in the person and work of Jesus. That's the gospel. That's when people talk about the gospel. I, we have to understand that we boil that down and we say that is that God's saving power is available in Jesus. And we proclaim that. That's what these disciples have been. You will be my witnesses. You will testify about me. You'll testify about the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This idea, the gospel is the good news that God's saving power is available in Jesus. God has made it clear the Gentiles should hear the gospel and believe. So all these Jewish Christians, all these Jewish believers, they're all gathered around and they they the first really the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts is about how do we get the gospel to the gentiles and this whole question of should we preach the gospel to gentiles and you've got all these miraculous things happening where god is pushing his people out they need to hear the gospel the ethiopian eunuch that guy needs to hear the gospel cornelius the roman centurion that guy needs to hear the gospel i'm going to push my people into uncomfortable situations so they can give the gospel the good news that god's saving power is available in jesus Here's another term that shows up in Peter's speech. The ideal response to the good news is what? It's it's hard. These are rhetorical questions. I want somebody to answer. I want somebody to, Dave, what is the ideal response? Dave said faith. Faith is the ideal response. The ideal response to the good news is faith. And what is faith? And we've talked a little bit about this. Faith, all these terms can be a little bit of Christianese, but just let me unpack it. Faith is the idea of trusting the message to be true, believing that that message is true, and entrusting yourself to God. What is faith? It's trusting God and entrusting yourself to Him. Trusting Jesus and entrusting yourself to Him. So faith. The good news is that the work of Jesus, God's saving power is available in the work of Jesus, and that work of Jesus, that saving power, is available by trusting the Lord and entrusting yourself to Him. And what we find out, so we've got gospel, we've got faith, and then we also see that the Holy Spirit is involved in this, that faith is somehow connected with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at 15.8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. That when, he, when they believed, just like when we believed, God gave us the Holy Spirit. When they believed, God gave them the Holy Spirit. So they hear the gospel, they have faith, they believe, God gives the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, and and this is the thing, in in some way, the Spirit works in us to produce faith, and that faith invites a more intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. There's a little bit of mystery about how, how all these terms actually fit together. So we've got gospel, good news, faith, trusting and entrusting, and the Holy Spirit. We also see that their faith, And the presence of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit does something about atonement. Look at verse 15, 9. It says that God, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts through faith. That when the gospel is heard, when it is received with faith, that there's a a presence of the Holy Spirit, that there is some kind of mysterious work of atonement that takes place. The sword of faith triggers the cleansing work of God, the cleansing work of God through Jesus and His Spirit. This mysterious process by which humans are put right in the presence of God, that God cleansed their hearts faith. And there's a lot of metaphors that we read about in Scripture, whether it's that God cleanses or God reconciles relationally or God justifies legally or God frees as in slavery, that these are all means of atonement. And that when you have the gospel preached, received in faith with the presence of the Spirit, that you see atonement taking place. Now, this is, again, This is like a a theology lesson, right? But this is how the church goes through and deals with this tension. They say we have to think theologically about this. We have to think about what does it mean for someone to be saved? And these key words, it's got to involve the good news, it's got to involve faith, it's got to involve the Holy Spirit, and it's got to involve some kind of atonement. And not just that, and I think at the very end, in verse 11 there's that great verse that sums this up as Peter kind of this mic drop moment, if you will. For, I don't know if it's a mic drop moment. I don't like the idea of mic. He's not trying to like show anybody up. It's simply this idea in verse 11 where he says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And as we think about these, you know, we've, we, have, we have this idea of gospel and faith and the Holy Spirit and atonement, this idea of grace, that somehow that God has done this graciously, the favor of God, if you want to talk about what, what is grace, grace is the undeserved favor of God. Now, these, these things, okay, now this is where I'm going to, I'm going to like, it's, it's fourth down and I'm going to punt. Okay? It's fourth. Sometimes you go for it on fourth down, but sometimes on fourth down you punt. I'm going to punt, and with, with this in mind, I'm going I'm to make a theological punt. I don't know, are there theological long snappers out there that, anyway, all right, but here's the punt. The punt is this. All of these terms, this cluster of terms, Jesus, faith, Holy Spirit, grace, will of God, human response, okay? All of those, that cluster. This the way those things all work together has been the point of theological reflection for two millennia and beyond. Like, what order does all of this happen in? Where does the Holy Spirit fit into this? Is the Holy Spirit involved with atonement, or is that just Jesus? Like, all of this stuff that at some point we have to kind of step back and say, all of these things are part of salvation and what it takes to be saved But there's also a point where we have to say, there's also a great mystery about how that works. Okay? Even if we say, yes, the gospel is preached, it's received in faith, the Holy Spirit is part of that, the work of Jesus is part of that, that this is the gracious will of God that's accomplishing this. All of those things together, it's all part of a cluster of terms and ideas that at some point, yes, as theologians, we kind of work this out, and our doctoral statement does work out a lot of these things, but there is also a part that we have to understand that there is a things of first importance... We might work that out more specifically in a secondary way. And then there might be third level things that we work out in our our salvation understanding how to live our Christian life. And we see that in this passage, but what they're asking right here is, what does it take for these Gentiles to be saved? And can we affirm, well, should we affirm you've got to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? And what they're saying is, Those terms, circumcision, Torah observance, are not part of that cluster of terms and ideas of what it takes for someone to be saved. And so this idea, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, grace, the will of God, human response of faith, absent from that cluster, is Torah-keeping, and circumcision. And that's what Peter's trying to say. That's what Paul and Barnabas argue for. And that's an important point, not only for them, but it's important for us. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we, as we move on, because we always have to ask the question, when we give the gospel, what do we, we require as a response before we say, oh, that was an authentic reception of faith, that someone actually believed the gospel, that that person according to what our community says is saved, according to what God says is saved, or even ourselves, how do I know that I have been saved? Is there anything else that I'm lacking in my salvation? But there's always this question, even if Peter, and what's interesting is as you look at this passage, um, look at verse 12, after Peter says this, the assembly falls silent, and usually when an assembly falls silent, it means that they have, they have acquiesced to what the speaker has just said. They basically said, yes, that's what you have said is true. What you have said is, is indeed true. And then they listen to Paul and Barnabas relate the signs and wonders of the first missionary journey. But there's always this question And I know, like, in in the years of youth ministry that I've been involved with, the years of church ministry, and seeing people come to faith, there's always a question of, okay, that person has believed, but there's always a question of once we experience initial faith, how should we then proceed? So they've, they've established, I feel like in this passage, what they've done is they've established, look, in order to be initially saved, you don't need Torah and, and circumcision. You don't need that in order to experience salvation. But now we're going to get into this question what James is going to address is, once you experience that initial faith, what must you then do to proceed? Like, maybe, maybe then, maybe after that, it might be helpful. So, how should we proceed? What sort of practices and sensibilities does a life of faith produce or demand? This question of, okay, is it just, and I remember, you know, theologically, these ideas of like, is it, can you just believe in Jesus and everything's going to be okay? Like, don't you have to do some things along the way? Like, doesn't, doesn't Jesus have to be Lord of your life? Like, what if your life never changes, but you believe, you put these, you put your faith in Jesus, is that real faith? There's, there's all kinds of questions about that, and that is also an enduring debate among Christian theologians and even among people in the church but what sort of practices and sensibilities does the life of faith produce or demand? What are the next steps, if you will? How, and more particularly to what they're saying, how should we tell the Gentiles to proceed in a life of faith? And what role should these Jewish identity markers of, of, of circumcision, food laws, Sabbath regulations, what role should these play in the life of and sensibilities of these new believers? How will Jews and believing Gentiles live in fellowship and partnership sharing a common salvation? Now, just theologically speaking, since we talked about this initial act of salvation, justification, if you will, this idea of what are the next steps is what we commonly call uh, sanctification, is the process of how do we go forward in the Christian life? What are the practices that produce growth and thriving and community? And so, James's speech is a lot about that. What are the steps forward as we move into, as these Gentiles move into a life of faith, what, are, what is the best way forward? Look at 1519. 1519. James is going to begin his speech, and he's going to quote from Amos, and then in 1519 he says, "...therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God." but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay. Now, do you feel like you just went into the time machine and you arrived in a different land? Like, okay, why no, why no strangling of animals and why not eating blood? And what is all of this about? And um, th- there's a couple of things to note, okay? What James is saying here is that these are not requirements for salvation, but these are going to be very, some very pragmatic things that are going to help them in their sanctification and not just in their own personal sanctification, but how they are going to relate to others in their community, particularly believing Jews, that if there's this idea that okay, the Jews have believed in a community and these Gentiles have believed that Jesus is Messiah, that now they're going to need to come together and they're going to need to eat the Lord's Supper together. They're going to have to eat at the same table together. They're going to have to be together. How can? What should we tell these Gentiles in order to allow them to be together with the Jewish community that also believes in Jesus? And so they say these four things, these pragmatic things that are going to help them not only in their own situation, but in partnership with their Jewish counterparts. So obviously, one thing that I think is helpful for salvation, but also practically is um, not to get involved with idolatry. (laughs) Okay? I mean, you're like, thank you very much, Captain Obvious. Um, No idolatry. But what, what James is going to say is, look, let's not eat things that have been sacrificed to idols. Now, later on, Paul is going to have the same conversation about what do we do with meat sacrificed to idols? And he's going to say, it's neither here nor there. It's not like this will pollute you or not pollute you. The point is, is that it's going, there's some in the community that are going to be seared in their conscience, and those that are not, it's going to produce a division among you. And so he says, look, just by eating this meat, it doesn't mean you're an idolater, but it is going to produce a significant tension in your community. Stay away from it. It's not going to be helpful. He also says to avoid sexual immorality and probably hearkening back to Leviticus 17 and the sexual uh, markers there that talk about what is God's will for human sexuality between one man and one woman, and that everything outside of that in the context of marriage is going to be sexual immorality or porneia is the word here in greek that this this is something porneia would have been something that in the pagan world would have been just one of those things that you do That it's not a big deal but in the jewish community this is going to be significant And i think that this is a significant thing that that james is going to say and that paul and barnabas and that the pauline letters are going to say that we should flee from sexual immorality that can someone be saved even if they are sexually immoral, I think that there is, the gospel is for broken people. And that if you have sexual immorality in your past, certainly that can be forgiven. That is not something that's a disqualifier. But the path forward is going to involve walking with sexual integrity. And that's not only going to help you, but it's going to help the community that you are a part of. And I think that sexual integrity is something, obviously, um, as we read further into our New Testament, it's not on the same level as food laws, which are like, yeah, it's neither here nor there. It's going to be a little bit more solid in its... No, this is an important, important thing. Certainly, God can forgive these things. But walking in a pattern that pleases God is going to involve fleeing porneia, fleeing sexual immorality, and pursuing sexual integrity. It also says what's been strangled. And I think this idea of of going back to the idea of of food that is not kosher or Torah, that when things are strangled and they're not butchered, there's blood that, that is inside of them and that's against Torah and you can't have things that are strangled because of blood. And then it says that they should abstain from blood. And this could be about eating blood, but some commentators have argued that this is that they should abstain from blood shed. That they should abstain from violence. So, I think both of those things might work. I, this idea of um, later on, the early church is going to say, um, idolatry, sexual immorality, and bloodshed. That that kind of sums up these three things, and that that's what this is about. All right. So, the idea is the Gentiles have heard the gospel and they've had an authentic reception of the gospel. And they should, we should not burden them with a new yoke. We should not burden them with a new weight that they cannot bear, but only to give them these ways forward for health in their own lives and also in the life of their community. All right. Now, I hope the tension is relieved. I don't know if, it's not actually in this passage because what we're going to find out is that Paul and Barnabas are going to go back on the second missionary journey and he's, Paul's going to have to write the book of Galatians, which is talking about these very people who've gone out saying you have to be circumcised, you have to eat kosher, and you've got a Sabbath keep in order to be saved. And Paul's going to have great dissension with them, continuing with the book of Galatians and all the way through um, Even in the book of Philippians, Paul says he's in jail and there are people preaching the gospel, preaching about Jesus that are trying to cause him harm and trouble. This might be the same idea that this tension is going to exist for quite some time in the early church. And I would argue that that tension still exists in our church today, only it might not be about circumcision, Sabbath keeping, and food regulations That as we walk through our lives of faith and in communities of faith that we might have found ourselves in communities of faith that have add-ons to the gospel. And that there's certain points of time in the life of a church and in the life of a community where we have to take a step back and ask ourselves, have I added something on to the essentials of the gospel. Have I said, or have we as a community ever said, in order to be saved, you must also do this? And that this, whatever this is, is not, doesn't involve Jesus, the will of God, the gracious will of God, the response, human response of faith, or the Holy Spirit. And I think that as we're here and as we are at the beginning of a new year, We are also at the beginning of a new season really we're 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 kind of entering in hopefully to the end of the COVID season but we're also in we're in a political season we're in a political season where it's like we live it's like the united states has been divided by two sets of people that live in two completely different realities where one side cannot even affirm the reality of another side, and that is true going both directions. And what I love about this passage is that the church comes to this point where they're like, okay, we've done it this way for so long, but we have to find a new path forward. The old ways that we've done this, this, the inclusion of the Gentiles, the old ways that we have done this are not going to be adequate to get us into the next season. And I simply want to say this about our own, our own situation here in the United States of America, pandemic, political divide, the ways that we have gotten here are not going to be the ways that we proceed out of this season. The rhetoric of whatever cable channel you watch is not going to get us out of this season there is going to be a need for a new path to be formed the old ways have led to dead ends i want to read a quote from a philosopher named aj swoboda aj swoboda spoke this on a podcast that i was listening to He said, we now live, we as Christians, he's saying, we now live in an environment where I'm not permitted to find any political party that can say that the lives of the unborn and the lives of children at the border matter. There's no political party that will allow me to say that we should care for creation and that we need to care for human beings and the economy. There is no political party that I know of that will simultaneously hold the sexual holiness and biblical views around sexuality and look at gay and lesbian people in the face and speak to them with dignity as people who should have respect and love. You might add to that this week that there's no political party that allows me to care about careless political rhetoric and election integrity. Back to Swoboda, he says, it probably feels like I am two different people or can't be who I am because I live in a system that can't allow me to fully embrace the kingdom of God. And to embrace God's kingdom is to care about the things that God seems to really care about in the Bible, and that will always offend the lines that we divide between what it means to be conservative and liberal. What he says is, he says, I think that being a Christian now means that you are a politically homeless person. And I would say this, if you feel this week a great sense of grief about whatever it is, and you feel like you don't belong on either side Welcome to the exile. You might not have realized it, but you as a believer, you as someone who values the kingdom of God, you have been in exile for a long time. You might have simply chosen a side, but I think the events of this last week and the political rhetoric that we have seen through 2020 has convinced me ever more than ever before that we are political exiles that if we're going to care about things in the Bible, that we're going to have to say yes and yes and no and no to both sides of the aisle. And if we get caught on one side or the other, it is going to be something that we are going to regret as a church, as a follower of Jesus. And I know that I don't typically speak politically, and when I do, it is simply this, and I'm going to, I'm going to say this, The path forward is not to entrench on one side of the aisle or another. I'm going to tell you this morning, the path forward is to fix your eyes on Jesus and care about the things that Jesus cares about. And what that's going to mean is it's going to mean some discipline. It's going to mean a new path forward. And it might even mean some new habits. It might mean turning off the news. It might mean turning off your social media. It might mean stop posting or not speaking in an incendiary fashion to other people or not being the prophetic voice that calls out every sense of injustice every time you hear it. It might mean you changing your habits. And the idea is that God knows that we are not the people we have yet to become. And as we embrace this idea in our church that we are a congregation of growing people, that we are called to change our habits from time to time, I would say often. And this is an opportunity, a chance for us to change our habits like the church has done for thousands of years when it is faced with tension and conflict. It comes together, it asks a theological question, And then it asks pragmatically, how do we move forward in unity? We see that in this passage. And I pray that we will see that in our own lives as we move forward into this new season. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Father, this is a challenging time. And even the words that I've spoken this morning might challenge, they might infuriate some, they might... Uh, help people to make sense of where they are. I don't know what it is, but Father, we ask that you would show us a path forward where we can care about the things you care about, not selectively, but to care about all the things you care about. To care about the unborn and to care about children of immigrants. To care about the things you care about, to care about the gospel going out to every person, to care that every human being has an overwhelming value and dignity regardless of where they are at in their lives. Father, if there are places where we need to repent, show us. And today at this service as we sing this last song, let us repent, let us ask for forgiveness, and ask for the strength to move forward in a new path Father, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that he can be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. There's no president or senator that will be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, you are enthroned. You are our king. We gladly bow our knee to you, And if there are things in our lives that we need to take stock of, we will do it at your leading and guidance. Father, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.